This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is May 12th, 2022, and this is episode 289. I'm Strat Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, possibly the worst political debate ever in Canadian politics history. It may have just occurred. We'll get into the latest Conservative Party leadership debate. We'll also round up some of the other stuff that's happening. The Alberta Court of Appeal targeting the federal environmental impact assessment laws fundraising in the BC Liberal Leadership Contest, Horgan becoming the ambassador to Ireland. Everything is happening. Actually, it was kind of a quiet week. That's okay. I was busy watching parliamentary debates in Ottawa from the block on abolishing the prayer and then being horribly disappointed when the Liberals, Conservatives, and Charlie Angus teamed up to keep it. So I'll guess that last one. Yeah, four NDP MPs support the prayer in the parliament. Angus, as well as Daniel Blakey, Rachel Blaney, and Laurie Idlot, the new MP for Nunavut, who I wouldn't have guessed. Otherwise, yeah, it was the Bloc, NDP, and Greens. The Independent, who we all forget about because he got kicked out of the Liberals for being a possible predator, he also voted with the government. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. That's all just my work and block shenanigans. We have lots of Canadian and BC politics to talk about. Before we get into that, 289, we're 11 episodes away, 11 weeks away from our 300th episode, July 28th, potentially, assuming we keep on schedule, which we've been pretty good at over the last... We've pretty much, with the exception of a couple weeks, kind of in that Christmas New Year period every now and then, we've consistently hit a weekly schedule, so... I am pretty confident that we'll hit 300 on that day. So listeners, let us know, Twitter, Slack, email, what you think we should do. You can, I think you can leave a comment still on our website at politicos.ca if you want. We sometimes get those and we sometimes read them. What should we do for episode 300? Maybe COVID will be low enough we could do something live. Who knows? If you want to be the first to know or get our ear the easiest, go to patreon.com slash politicoast, become a patron, become a supporter of the show, we'll add you to the Slack channel, and you can get into all of the conversations about BC politics, Canada politics, municipal politics, and the Canby Report crew are there too, or just lots of memes, humor, and everything else is going on there all the time. It's great. Let's talk about sad trombones. Scott, you suffered through the first official conservative leadership debate. The one we talked about last week was just the unofficial one organized by the Canada Strong and Free Network, I believe. How- I think so. I, I I always just call them the Manning Center because I can never remember which collection of vaguely um, superfluous a- adjectives and nouns are their new name. But yeah, that was the unofficial debate and a 
very shouty debate, which, for all of how terrible this other one was, they at least avoided repeating that particular failing. So once again, I followed along via the reactions after the takes on Twitter and in our Slack and elsewhere, and I feel less inclined to go back and watch this one. It doesn't seem like anyone learned anything substantive about the candidate. Patrick Brown was there, to his credit. Yes, he was, and uh, yeah, he had decent de- debate performance. But you weren't interested to know uh, which of the candidates' favorite artist is Amy Winehouse? I saw the questions as they were being asked via Twitter. Things like, what book are you reading right now? What, what is, yeah, what's your favorite music? Who would you go back in history and have dinner with? Was that an actual question? That was an actual question. The like, here's a list of things you can ask if you're really bad at small talk and, and need something to to get a conversation going. Like they they pulled that from there. The the that, format that was like a celebrity trip. dating show thing, right? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. And what if they had asked kind of one question on a get to know the candidates thing? Fine, it's no big deal. The problem is they spent like a fourth of the debate on that particular thing in a way that just got to be excessive. I think the party doesn't want to talk about policy. (laughs) I just do not care what Leslyn Lewis has been binging on Netflix. That was an actual question. The fact that Pierre Polyev's latest read was Jordan Peterson's 12 Simple Rules or that he was watching the Trotsky documentary, that is fascinating in its own way. Probably not actually true. I I would bet a fairly significant amount of money those were picked for their political salience more than their representation of reality. The Trotsky ones may be specific enough that's the case, but the the Jordan Peterson one felt really, I I need a, I'm going to say something that's going to appeal to the crowd. Yeah, unless he's the guy who's going back and reading that repeatedly, which I could see. I'm assuming he bought it fairly shortly after it came out and read it then which was like a couple years ago now. I'm not going to look this up. It was pre-pandemic. That's all I can remember. The before times. But that's not the only way it was in a game show format, as I understand. There was also a literal trombone. Yeah, this is... I don't even know how to explain this to people who didn't watch it. Basically, the moderator had a button that would play the classic... Sad trombone sound. Jesse, I dare you to find the audio and like, clip it in here go for it oh that that should absolutely be done because it it was literally the the most stereotypical classic version of that there are probably millions of copies of that sound file on the internet anyway he had the button to make the trombone sound and during opening statements he laid out a couple rules that candidates couldn't mention other candidates or the prime minister and if they did, they would be cut off by name. sad trombones. Like they could allude to Not them? Not by name. They, like, is this like a parliamentary debate? Like you have to say the member for such and such, or they just should not even be? They could obliquely refer to them, but not directly. I think the pri- saying the prime minister was over the line. Some reference to another candidate who has whatever position I think was okay. I, I can't remember those details too, too much because it, it was a whole thing. Anyway, that was, yeah, quite the, the way to start. And, uh, 
for all the silliness that it was when a uh, sad trombone sound played and it is kind of silly that okay you can't talk about the prime minister the singularly most important politician in the country in a political debate is a little silly on the other hand the conservative party desperately needs to learn how to talk to normal people without ranting about trudeau all the time and on that front it was probably a net win, despite the ridiculousness of it. It's like training wheels for their leadership contendants to be like... <laughs> a little bit, yes. <laughs> we know you want to go all over the place, but you need to be able to stay within the line. Here are the bumpers on your bowling alley. Wow. The, the opening statements were actually probably some of the better things I've heard those candidates say, in part because I think they were having to, to work hard to avoid the easy lines on that they they did actually also talk about some issues but part of the problem was the format was so terrible because they dedicated 20 minutes to the speed dating portion of the debate that the candidates only really had 15 seconds to answer questions so you would get stuff like what is your position on ukraine you have 15 seconds specifically i think it was about no fly zones which Everyone except Patrick Brown was firmly opposed to, and Patrick Brown was kind of a throw the caution to the wind, fuck it, let's go, we're gonna start shooting down Russian planes, which is A, certainly a take, and B, the whole question felt weirdly dated, because well, the Ukrainian Air Force is still flying and, and doing fairly well, the Russians don't actually have air superiority, and the big threat is from artillery which a no-fly zone isn't going to do much for it would be wild it was for very canada much a, to like, come out. This yeah it would be wild for canada to come out now like months after Zelensky asked our parliament for a no-fly zone directly and specifically to be like yeah now we're ready now we'll do it now we'll engage in a direct shooting war with russia just in the sky not on the ground it's Patrick Brown's foreign policy is distinct from his parties. Can we say this, right? The most notable thing about his like public campaign is his only interview was like in one ethnic press, I think. I forget where it was, but it wasn't a mainstream or major news no, outlet. No, if this is the thing you I think you're referring to, it wasn't even an interview. It was a case of I think it was an event he was at where the question got recorded and later reported out. Where he said, like, he wouldn't stand with the Conservatives' policy of moving the Canadian embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, I was saying the Tamil Tiger thing, but... Oh, no. There was a interview he did, I think it was actually an interview, where he said he wouldn't move the Canadian embassy to Jerusalem, despite that being a relatively long-standing conservative policy. He would welcome Palestinians as refugees to Canada. I think when asked, he was being, that was in response to a question that wasn't him fronting it, but he took a much different approach to Palestinian-Israeli issues than the conservatives have been taking for quite a while. Which, like, I'm not against. I'd be interested in seeing a lot more come from him, but it's just, huh. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one for, for sure. Yeah, it was a publication. The interview was with Sada Al-Mashrek, a publication that serves the Muslim community in Montreal. 
Brown's team says the transcript published was an inaccurate betrayal of his views after he was asked about it for the National Post and in response to criticism from groups like the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs that called his comments disturbing. Let's come back to the debate, though. One of the other things I noticed in the second, third hand I was watching it through was just the repeated, oh yeah, Scott Aitchison is also here kind of takes how was the moderation because that doesn't strike me as great the the oh the moderation was terrible the the moderator clearly liked to talk more than he liked to listen to the candidates and yeah had a bad tendency to try and become the show part of it too also has to do with the weird format like they they would go down the line and ask everyone occasionally the moderator had to be reminded by one of the candidates that he'd miss them when going through that which also not super great. Um, but yeah, later on, they had this weird paddle system where two candidates would get to go one-on-one and then other candidates could basically raise their paddle that got handed out because apparently the debate needed prop comedy in it as well to get a chance to interject or say a piece on it. And they all ha- they only had five each and will probably not surprise anyone as Pierre Polyev shot through his very quickly and then had to stand quietly while everyone else debated. There's a joke I won't make there. <laughs> but yeah, on the opposite side, Scott Aitkinson was pretty reserved about using his, so it became a case where there was a fairly long stretch there where you didn't hear much from him in that. Yeah. That said, the moderator was fairly good at stopping just interjections and cutting candidates off if they went outside their time or or talked over each other too much. Which is an improvement over the last one, for sure. Well, I guess the other takeaway I took from following the feedback was there were, and some of the coverage after, was there were sharper criticisms, particularly from Sheree and Brown against Polyev and Polyev against Sheree, with... Yeah, the... Those two really ripped into uh, Polyev for his Bitcoin views. It's really easy (coughs) these days. That it is. The Browns line was fake internet money. There's Uh, the lie. Yeah, Yeah, there's not a huge amount wrong with that. All money is kind of fake, but at least it has the backing of governments to give it some tangibleness. Uh, Yeah, so... The value of cryptocurrencies has fallen by a massive amount since Pierre Polyev really started campaigning on those, which, yeah, left a pretty big opening, particularly because this big stick is that they're a thing that people should have access to because of inflation. And if you do the implied inflation rate of what Bitcoin or Ethereum would be, uh, it would massively outstrip what the Canadian dollar is doing. On that. On the. Also, he wants to fire the governor of the Bank of Canada, yeah. which is probably the thing that everybody took away from this. I think he had. Kind of the big... I think he had announced that a, a day or two in advance and started talking about it then. It doesn't really matter. It definitely blew up with the debate because pretty much everyone else was criticizing him for it from like columnists to the prime minister to former bank of Canada governor, David Dodge, who said that's bullshit in terms of 
what he thinks of Polyev's ideas about interfering in the Bank of Canada's independence. It's fairly rare for anyone who's been through the Bank of Canada, whether they're current or former governors, to get that feisty with a political candidate. The uh, the idea that the Bank of Canada is supposed to be independent of the government typically means they take that very seriously and don't weigh in on this stuff. And it, it really says something about how aggressive Pierre Polyev has been that they felt the need to, or someone, David Dodge, felt the need to weigh in on this and push back. On the other side, I gather Polyev had a string of long criticism for Charest around raising taxes, being a spender, having long gun registry, long gun registry, all those kind of things. So one that I found particularly interesting that you can confirm for me is he criticized Charest for voting in favor of a bill to criminalize abortion when he was part of Mulroney's government. That bill died in the Senate, which is why we don't have an abortion law now. But given that... Yeah, so that that did come up. That was part of the exchange on abortion. It got asked. The five non-Leslin Lewis candidates all took some version of we're not going to touch this at all. Lewis was I'm pro-life, but I'm not going to do a huge amount on changing the laws on it. Pierre had some very vague, I'm not going to introduce any bills or something on that. Like the standard line from conservatives of, we will not introduce any legislation, any government legislation on this, etc., etc. His response was noticeably more couched than that. And yeah, Polyev is a religious christian and and i can't remember if he's evangelical or catholic but has been rated as like a pro-life candidate by in the past by campaign life coalition and some of those groups his rating has fallen from those groups which is generally a good thing in my view as i think he moderated to try to get more to the leadership position so rather than being a full religious conservative he's more toward like the stephen harper position where he's still a religious person but is wanting to win yeah hence yeah, the Charest confusion pick- in his position yeah Charay picked up on that and went after him pretty hard on we're never gonna win if that's how you your positions are that's gonna be alienating to the i know it wasn't that it was that the people of canada will need an answer etc etc on that and that is where, as a rejoinder to Charest's attack on on Polyev for abortion, he hit back on back in eighty nine or whenever. No, it was later. The eighty eight was the decision, the, so it would been eighty eight, eighty nine is when the bill. Yeah, but I thought the law took a little while. It was basically in the very final days of the government before the election? Like, didn't the Senate kick it back and it died on the order paper when an election was called or something? Yeah, but they had yeah. one year to bring it in. I guess they didn't have to. They could have brought it in whenever. Anyway, but. sometime, roughly around the period I was born, plus or minus a year, like a long time ago on that, is when Charay, as part of the, the government of the day, did vote for the subsequent, the... Supreme Court said the previous law wasn't good, so we're going to adjust and put in some sort of 
legal framework for abortion. I, I don't actually know the details of the bill that came after. I the, don't uh, either. I don't actually know how it was viewed. Yeah. Like, it was not a, we're going back to, to no abortions in the country. There, there was To be clear, something- before Morgan Toller, we had therapeutic abortion committees where men at hospitals could decide whether or not you would get an abortion, and that created a lot of inequities. So abortion was allowed in some cases. Yeah, but yeah anyway, we so voted for the, the bill on that, and that got criticized by Polyev on that. It feels fairly weak as a thing. Not only was it 30-something years ago, but people in government cabinets vote with their government on this stuff. It's just kind of how it is. Yeah, I like the only exception I can think of in that era was I think it was Grace McCarthy and Kim Campbell in Bill Vanderzam's cabinet who like staunchly opposed the way he was going to try to continue to restrict abortions in BC following the overturning of the law. And basically Vanderzam's government was already falling apart at that point. And so he didn't really have much of a leg to stand on to maintain his fundamentalism. But that was a unique situation. Generally, cabinet is pretty united around key legislative priorities. Back to the debate once more. Any other takeaways? I heard that Roman Babber hates communism. That is true. He did come off as more nuanced than you would have guessed on issues around criminal punishments, rehabilitation, that sort of thing. Some of the dread law stuff. So, like, he's one. He, he seems to be one of those people that takes the freedom stuff very seriously and actually to its logical conclusions, which is not always the case. Right, the sort of consistent libertarian where I might disagree with some of the axioms you run by, but at least they all flow. Yeah. I guess it doesn't make sense to ask if there's a winner from a debate like that. I think the winners are people like me who didn't watch it. Yeah, it. I think Brown came off looking reasonably well, and he did, wasn't tarnished by the clown show that was the previous debate. And in that case, the clown show was all on the candidates rather than being mostly on the format and the moderator in this case (sighs) it's so ridiculous right this is this this entire thing situation is so ridiculous right because this is potentially the one opportunity for english language conservatives to meet the candidates the one main opportunity that the party has provided the other debate is going to be in french which makes sense. We're a bilingual country, and the conservatives need to pick up seats in Quebec if they want to become government as well. But if we don't get another English language debate, absolutely would... not everyone on that stage is particularly fluent in French. It's going to be a uh, mess. I think Louis. Is... Pardon? It's going to be a mess as well. Yeah. So you're basically going to have Jean Charest and Polyev go going at each other with as much intensity as before uh, in the previous ones and then you're going to have the rest of them with the french that sounds the way brad pitt's italian and in glorious bastards was or and Stephen it, harper's it is, french in his first election yeah it, it is going to be terrible they're all going to be standing there awkwardly trying to figure out how to say like the, the basic stuff in french it, it's going to be a mess it's not going to really tell people much 
The the one bright side is the for whatever reason, French moderators seem to just do better jobs in Canada and the French debates are always better moderated and more informative. Yeah. I don't well, know enough the about the, the difference the in the culture, cycles. but there is something about the Quebec political culture is a bit more rough and tumble and willing to question politicians on a regular basis. So from that aspect, it'll probably be a better debate, even if it's less rounded by all the candidates. But it's what it is. Yeah, so get back to who won or who at least came out looking fine. I probably have what you're going to get. I think... Babber comes off as less unreasonable than his social media and email blasts and all that stuff come across when, when you see him in person, but I can't figure out who his base is in this because you have Lewis and Paul, you have taken the same lane and both of them are more well-known and able to win in theory have passed to victory so i i don't know he's probably gonna be the first one off the ballot once they start eliminating people agenson was fine he said his piece did the why can't we all get along we need to appeal to people who aren't obsessive about this this stuff and swing voters and there will be people that appeals to myself being one of them but yeah, there's no memorable moment of the night from him, which is probably what would be needed to catapult him out of what I'm going to guess is second to last. We don't really have any polling, but that's pretty much where I figure he would be. All the rest were kind of just what you'd figure. No terrible moments or great ones, just there. A debate where everyone was just there. Just what we really hope for in our democracy. <laughs> Maybe we'll leave it there and move on to our roundup of quick takes. First up, Justin Trudeau took a trip to Ukraine. He made a few announcements while in Kyiv and then came back after the weekend, just your weekend in Eastern Europe in a war zone. Although these days the fighting's pretty far from Kyiv. Yeah, it was noteworthy when Boris Johnson went like a month ago there. Now it feels weirdly routine. And when I was putting together the episode plan document, I actually forgot that it happened this week, which probably says roughly how impactful it is. There was starting to be kind I don't think it really in the press, but definitely kind of rumblings out there that man, everyone else has gone done the state visit. Where's Trudeau on this? And he went pretty much I think as late as he could go without it starting to become a thing about why hasn't he gone? But none of the announcements were all that exciting. There's additional $50 million in military assistance for stuff like cameras for drones and the like, which will be useful. The Ukrainians have been making some uh, very effective use of drones for a bunch of different ap military applications. So good there. There's $10 million going towards human rights and civil society groups and demining efforts also good but in terms of the political impact this feels fairly eh yeah Not like you said i think said. everyone's largely forgotten about it it does allow him to not have the criticism of why haven't you gone 
and he was able to pound like in the debates I was watching it allowed the liberals to go people don't care about prayer and legislature they care about the war in Ukraine they care about inflation why are we debating this I'm like it's the bloc's day they can make it a debate about whatever they want the bloc pointed out the conservatives had a day of use their opposition day once in recent memory to ha- debate whether we should have a national oil day like Oh, God, the conservative is, party's a meme sometimes. I do not recommend watching debates. <sighs> While we're talking about the liberals, they are slowly working towards bringing forward an online hate law. This will be legislation that they've long promised, but after receiving a torrent of critical feedback just prior to the snap election call, uh, they've gone back to the drawing board and sent it to kind of a weird framework, an expert advisory group that's not really governed in the same way committees are. And so they're just holding discussion sessions where the experts kind of go over things. They might take some consultations. They're not publishing the consultations they receive, but people like Michael Geist have FOI'd them and gotten them out, which is not how our committees are supposed to work when they study things. But now the panel is being highlighted in the news as some of their preliminary reports, which are the, as far as I can tell, the summaries of the workshops they're doing. So not like official recommendations, but statements like the panel believes this, or the panel had disagreement about this. It's like it's notes from discussions without any names on them. And The big thing from the legislative framework workshop they have is that the hate law should be fairly broad and cover uh, large and small online platforms, not just Twitter and Facebook. So crowdfunding apps, everything from Airbnb to video games to our Slack channel. Yeah. So one of the things that was included here and got picked up in the CTV story and that's where I came across this because a lot of people in my Twitter feed were expressing outrage at the prospect that it would include private online conversations in, as well as the things you post on Twitter and Facebook, which I think rightly has a lot of people concerned. And yeah, would in theory absolutely include our slat, slat, all slats in general, but ours too. And potentially reading that, the DMs in our Slack or you know, signal DMs or WhatsApp messages and the like, which that feels pretty offside in terms of how far the government should go on really this public communication. Public social media is one thing, but private conversations between people really feels outside the bounds of what should be acceptable in a a free and open society for a government to be regulating. Yeah, I started this topic by kind of highlighting what this report is, because it's not a formal recommendation yet. So it's not clear how serious this is. It was a serious enough part of discussion that it made it into the notes of the meeting. And some parts of this are more broadly accepted among the experts. 
but it notes in the CTV piece, for example, that some experts say, quote, it would be hard to assert generalized obligations to act responsibly on some platforms like social media companies, but not others who operate on the same level of the tech stack. So the idea being some of them do point out that like, it would be really hard to regulate signal DMs without breaking the whole point of signal and its encryption. But which is definitely a risk where the government could go. There, there have been other countries that have moved to block encryption and in a way that I don't think really is compatible with civil liberties, but there, I believe the Brits have gone in that direction and every now and then you get ideas flowing up in the States about that too. Yeah, I know, so the, BC, yeah, I know the BCCLA is keeping a close eye on this. Um, and trying to figure out what's going on. Michael Geis, there are a lot of people keeping a close eye on this. So that's not to say I'm optimistic about what comes out of it, but people will be sounding the alarm if it's bad. Yeah, and it could definitely be bad. Part of the problem with the liberals is they they tend to feel so self-righteous in their motivations for stuff and and so self-confident that they often feel immune or immune from criticism on that or that they shouldn't be criticized because their motivations are pure and they can bring in some pretty bad ideas because they're, they're not really thinking them through because, you know, our intentions are good and whatnot. And this in particular feels like one of those direction, one of those areas where that's a particularly high risk factor for. But it's worth keeping in mind that if whatever the final proposal is, it, it will probably pass because there's the liberals have a good chunk of votes and they probably get the NDP to sign on to an on- online harms bill unless it's like truly egregious. It's not part Which, of the confidence and supply agreement to be It's not part fair. of that. I don't totally disagree, but I think if the NDP will be ring- willing to bring forward civil liberties concerns and has in the past, yeah. but, does they'll shoot it down? I don't know. Yeah. I, it's hard to say. But keep in mind, if this thing passes, in theory, in a couple of years, it won't be Justin Trudeau that will be making these decisions. Hey, it'll probably be a third, like some appointed body. But the people being appointed to that will be appointed by Pierre Polyev or Jean Or, or Jagmeet Singh. <laughs> oh, let's not get ridiculous here. The NDP are never going to win power in our lifetimes federally. But there. I, I would just caution the liberals on this, that if you're not willing to have Stephen Harper or Pierre Polyev making the decisions on what's good or not online, you shouldn't be putting those powers into the federal government's purview. Speaking of powers in the federal government's purview, the Alberta Court of Appeal thinks there are too many in that purview. Specifically, the court has ruled on a reference question filed by the United Conservative Party's government on whether the Impact Assessment Act, this was amended as Bill C-69 a couple years ago, and the Conservatives in Alberta and the Prairies were up in arms, and the federal Conservatives as well. The court was asked, is this bill that expands in some ways the ability of the federal government to look at uh, major resource development projects? Within the scope of the division of powers of the Constitution, the court came back with a majority, a 3-1-1 decision. So there was a majority, a concurring, and a dissenting decision. So it was a 4-1 decision uh, that, yes, it is unconstitutional. This is, quote, a classic example of legislative creep. And that's it. It's a reference question. So it doesn't strike the law down. Kenny seems to think it does. (laughs) 
And he's like, this no, the Impact Assessment Act no longer applies to Alberta. And it's, you can argue that, but they, it doesn't repeal the law. You still would have to bring another challenge. It becomes easier once you yeah. have this reference on the books. But yeah, it's an interesting decision. I don't think either of us have had a time to really dig into it. A number of lawyers and commentators on Twitter, especially environmental lawyers, are pretty uh, cynical about this, and they think it's unlikely to survive a Supreme Court of Canada appeal who have generally taken a slightly broader approach to federal powers and the scope of federal powers, especially around the environment. The Alberta Court of Appeal was like the lone dissenter compared to Saskatchewan and Ontario in finding that the federal carbon tax was unconstitutional. So, I don't know, something's going on in this court. Maybe they just have a slightly different approach to the law, or maybe this time they did get it right, but we'll have to see where this fight goes. It's one yeah, of those like does- showy promises from the Jason Kenney government that it's a good way to I, spend money. It doesn't I'm not a lawyer, but it doesn't strike me as entirely unreasonable that you could have cases where, yeah, some degree of federal legislative power makes sense. It's going to be okay. When it's expanding out kind of within the delegated federal powers, ain't kind of using that to basically do a an end run around the division of powers and ultimately regulate resource stuff. That doesn't strike me as an inherently unreasonable concern or something that could on balance uh, go too far legally. I just don't know enough on the specific details of this one to to say where that uh, line is or isn't. Well, and if it goes through the Supreme Court of Canada, maybe we'll come back and visit it in much more depth then. Next, let's talk briefly about some BC politics. The Elections BC has released some of the Liberal Party leadership contestant financing reports. Uh, They would have released them all, but four candidates out of seven didn't file anything yet. Stan Sipos, past guest of the pod, did not file as he had extenuating circumstances, so he has until June 6th to file. Kevin Falcon, Val Litwin, and Renee Merrifield all also must file by June 6th, but they're facing a $500 fine for not doing it. Kevin Falcon is notably being sworn into the legislature this week, so presumably he didn't want anything to throw off that news cycle, so maybe he's just eating the fine. Assuming there's something bad in there that he wants to hide. Or it just is news he doesn't want to talk about as much. I don't know, like, pe- people like us will skim through the reports and pick up something noteworthy, but, like, it's, for the most part, like, most people aren't looking through and talking about their, like, the the only reason, the only way the, I'm gonna eat a fine on this to avoid filing is if there's something he really doesn't want to talk about. If it's just a, I don't know, some donor that he is not, I don't even know on that one. It would list his major donors. Yeah, unless there's someone that's particularly embarrassing to be on that list that he doesn't, doesn't want. Like, it just honestly seems like very small potatoes to to do an end round around this. So, Although $500 isn't that much. but $500 isn't that much. But Let's talk about the people who did file. So we have data from Michael Lee, Ellis Ross, and Gavin Dew. Michael Lee rose, raised about 621000 Ellis Ross just over 500000 and Gavin Dew about 80000 
What's interesting here is Ellis Ross outperformed Michael Lee. In terms of number of donors, but not total haul. Oh, no, sorry, in votes. Oh, yeah. So Ellis Ross went to the last round and had 34% of the vote. Michael Lee had 14% of the vote on the first round. Ross had 26% and Lee had 10%. So Ross did much more with slightly less money. Now, the campaigns all had a cap of 600000 so there was no reason for Ellis Ross to go raising more money. Did. That's still a hundred thousand. That's one sixth the amount that he missed the spending cap by. So it's not nothing. That said, like the, the Ross campaign, looking at it from the outside, definitely seemed to be a kind of very lean and focused operation where they weren't splashing around a lot of money on stuff. Yeah, and, the, and very. They definitely had the most donors, so they were getting a lot of small donors, sixteen hundred and fifty almost. Versus Michael Lee had about 850 and both had similar number of large donors. So Lee got a lot of money from a smaller number of people versus Ross had a bit more of that grassroots feel. Now, it was nowhere near enough to win, but that was how it appeared, at least from the outside, that Ross was picking up some of the momentum, especially once Aaron Gunn pulled out or was rejected it's all he was rejected that's right and then yeah gavin do got five percent of the vote and raised eighty thousand dollars from 441 people can't say much about that when we don't have kind of the people in the same realm vowel that went in renee merrifield to compare them to i want the yeah, rest so of the we'll data have to wait for uh, after june sits for the rest of them and see where it goes but someone else we're waiting to see where they go is the premier there's been a rumors circulating around for a while now about whether he's going to run for a third term and this past week he did an interview with ctv news where he talked a bit about that so he's not ruling out a third term run nevertheless there were a couple interesting quotes about how he has to quote i have to confess my energy's been flagging i think fair I was enough by, he did yeah, just like the guy said cancer and covid yeah, and uh, I can't speak to cancer, but yeah, COVID definitely knots the knots quite a bit of energy out of you while you're down with it. Like, f fair enough, but still, like at the same time, typically politicians who are planning on sticking around do their absolute best to try and avoid the appearance of having flagging energy. So it is interesting. I don't, you know, could just be a moment of of more honesty than intentional, or it could be a sign of where things are going. Yeah, he told CTV on coming out of cancer treatment that quote, I think I was driven by adrenaline when I came out of it. I was just so happy to be finished with it. I probably jumped into the pool a little bit earlier than I should have. As in, he did seem overly like back in it when he stepped back into the role and uh, Farnworth stepped out of the kind of acting premier role. But Horgan says on the future, as long as I can keep making a valuable difference, I'm going to keep doing it. And I think he cited, like, as long as people like me, I'll keep doing it. But then the even more interesting part of this or random part of this interview is that they asked him about speculation that he might be the Canadian ambassador to Ireland one day, as he has dual citizenship and seems to really enjoy referencing Ireland. And he said, I think I could probably pull that off. It's not a bad idea. Next time I talk to the prime minister, I'll see what he has to say about that. What? <laughs> Such an out-of-left-field idea. Like, was anyone actually talking about this before? I don't know. I'd missed it. 
but I miss a lot of things, but good for him. I'm sure it'd be fun. I like Ireland. It's a nice country, but you have a job right now. One, one would hope you're entirely focused on that. And maybe this was, maybe the text of the transcript doesn't capture the tone. Maybe he was being a little more satirical or funny about this, or maybe he's like, cool, I'll go to Dublin. We'll have to see. He's got the power that he doesn't need to actually decide anything. He can pretty much play coy like this for as long as he wants. Internally, he does at some point need to tell his party, but again, he's the boss. He just needs to make sure he gives the rest of the party enough time to get someone in before the next election if he needs to, or win the next election and then bugger off shortly after that, or I don't know. Stick around as long as you want, as long as you're popular. <laughs> what do I know? And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.